Welcome to Desert Island Risks, the podcast where we talk to industry leaders and learn about the risks and rewards behind the success. Today, we meet Mark Robinson, co-founder of Alandi, award-winning entrepreneur and one of the market's leading advocates for placemaking and community creation. Having begun his career in retail 28 years ago, Mark took the leap in founding his own platform, Elandi, in 2008. Known by his colleagues and those who follow him on social media as someone who isn't afraid of throwing a metaphorical grenade into the room, Mark is always ready to question the norm. Since Elandi's early days, he has been challenging the purpose and potential of town centres, championing community creation, inclusivity and sustainability. To date, Mark and the Alandi team have been involved in over 2 billion worth of projects in over 50 communities. As well as being one of the most successful owner-operators of shopping centres, Alandi are increasingly looking to repurpose malls or even hold town centres. Mark's success has been recognised across the market through a number of accolades, including being chosen as president of Revo, and his government appointment as chair of the High Street Task Force. Whilst many might see Mark as someone who is grounded and downright sensible, you may be surprised to hear that his personal retail collection consists of several sequined festival outfits, (laughs) usually picked out by his teenage children and accompanied with matching face glitter. Well, Mark, unfortunately, we won't be able to hear your top eight festival tracks today as per our namesake. But we can talk about the sparkle you've brought to the UK's town centres and the retail market throughout your career. Mark Robinson, welcome to Desert Island Risks. Thank you. I was quite nervous about this and now I'm full on petrified. I mean, (laughs) oh my goodness. Uh, Look. As I said, I'm quite nervous about this. I've done quite a lot of podcasts and what have you, and I've seen the roster of amazing guests you've had before. And these are titans, leviathans of the industry who can deploy billions of pounds at their whim. I'm a glorified retail property spiv with a good Twitter game. So I don't know how interested people are going to be, but let, let's um, have have fun for an hour or so. Well, I love the way you talked about this podcast as having a huge element of jeopardy. You don't know what's coming your way. I'm properly scared. Well, let's find out. To tell the Alandi story, I guess it makes sense to start at the beginning. And we thought there was no better way than talking to your business partner, former managing director at Deutsche Bank, Morgan Garfield, who tells us more about how it all began. Mark was a client of mine when I was a banker, but like most good relationships, that only really flourished when alcohol was added to the equation. We both chatted through our respective worldviews and frustration, and wouldn't there be a great opportunity for a bloke who understood spreadsheets and a bloke who was a surveyor to work together? And it was very much one of those waking up the next morning thinking, did I really say that? Did he really say that? And um, there was a hastily arranged coffee at Starbucks the, the, the day after. Tell us more about that Starbucks meeting. Uh, it's a, the, the meeting the afternoon before was far more interesting. But actually, Morgan was a very good banker. And, and the reason I know he's a very good banker, because I was never actually a client of his. He never actually lent me any money. So, he, you know, he's, he's, he's better than he makes out. But we, we became friends. Um, and we did, it was a glorious August, I seem to remember. And we decided to sort of put some 
yeah, I was pretty much working for, I was working for myself and Morgan decided to have a client meeting on a Friday afternoon, which just happened to be in the sun in Clapham Old Town. And, and over the course of, I think it was about seven pints of Guinness, we were talking about frustrations. I, I was developing, I was working on my own, effectively developing small infill um, development sites. Um, and Morgan was talking about his frustrations in banking and I was trying to forward fund some of these developments I was doing and the pricing was getting worse and worse and worse. Yields were moving out and out and out. And this is the summer of 2007. So the wheels are a long way from coming off. And being the bright fellow is, he was explaining to me about how the credit markets in America were a bit gummed up and how that meant if finance isn't available, prices go up. Um, so I thought, well, there's something interesting going on here. So as you said, we, we reconvened over in the Starbucks on Clapham Old Town, literally opposite the sun uh, the next day and, and thought about this. And we thought, yep, there's something here. The, the market isn't seeing the wobble that is coming. And we had three months to kick it around a bit. And we actually wrote a business plan, which is uh, laughably incorrect if you revisit it. Um, and one of the big risks, as we, we decided to think about it over Christmas, and one of the big risk elements we had in December 2007 on the list. In fact, top of the list of risks was market recovery in 2008. You know, we felt if the market came back, we wouldn't have a chance to raise and deploy capital. So we kind of were right about the direction of travel, but completely wrong in respect of the speed and severity of it. But there again, so is the whole market. We can, you know, 2008 was just an extraordinary time. Well, this is it. When, when you and Morgan actually founded the business was the beginning of 2008. And, uh, you had this agreement that the market was about to, to dip. But why on earth did you both think it was the right time to take a big risk and start something new? Well, it, you should be interviewing him, frankly. It was a far bigger risk for him. I'd, I'd already done this. I was already unemployable by anybody else. Um, and I had effectively, you know, the last big corporate job I'd had was working at Chartwell Land. And I'd left that in 2001. So I'd already gone rogue. So it was less of a risk for me, I think it's fair to say, uh, than it was for Morgan and, and fair play to him. But we set up, then the actual company formation happened on the 1st of April, 2008, just to make it you know, a very, very fortuitous date in many ways. But um, <laughs> Here's the feel. But we actually went out to MIPIM that year, which is in the March, already said we were going to set the business up. And we were going around MIPIM telling the story about how things were going to get worse in the credit markets and the effect on the real estate market. And people thought we were generally bonkers. You know, nobody saw oh. it coming. Yeah, there's a few troubles, but you know, this, you know, and even to the extent we started pitching our wares to banks, and uh, we went to see RBS, and there was this very avuncular old Scotsman called George Fife who ran their workout team, and he listened to us, and he said, "That's that's a really interesting pitch, boys." But you know, and I can see you know banking and real estate skills. Yeah, that could really really work. But you know, you know, we went through the crisis in the early '90s, and we put in place all these safeguards, and we securitized loans, and we've spread risk and. The, the immortal words were, you know, I've got a team of three. And if we end up with a team of 10, then things have gone very badly wrong. Now, I think GRG at its peak had 320 odd people working Whoa. there. So yeah. people forget, you know, people talk about 2008, early 2008, people were just thinking this is a road bump. This is a flesh wound. We're going to get over it. And it really wasn't until the autumn and it wasn't until the Lehman's event that the blind panic started to happen. And then it was even more difficult in a way because people were so scared and people had no idea what was going on and we struggled to get traction with businesses because they were running around with their hair on fire so you know even though we were right it didn't help us initially well curiously it was the same time i started boho partners so naturally i think your timing was genius <laughs> thank you but you say we should uh, we should have asked morgan we did ask morgan um morgan talked about human cost 
to taking risk, sharing his thoughts on the personal impact of you guys starting out. In our first year, we made the princely sum of £9,000 each. And I remember us still being full of the joys of spring and how successful the business was being when we went for the inaugural Alandi Christmas party and took our respective wives out for dinner. And they both came back from the toilet and launched into us at about the time dessert was arriving and said, well, it's great that you two are having a good time and going to Chaconis regularly for lunch. But when the hell are you going to make some money and how is this business ever going to work? And maybe with the renewed focus of our shareholders and our respective lives, things improve the year after. I love the idea that um, whilst you are privately held, you, you do have stakeholders to report to in the form of your better halves. And never has it been truer said than better halves for both of us. We have amazing wives. There's just no two ways about it, which has given us a huge license to be able to do what we've been able to do, I think it's fair to say. So, uh, you know, they say every man has a woman. That's absolute codswallop. The, these ladies are exceptional human beings that have allowed us to thrive. Let's hear from your oh. better half. We we spoke to Lou Robinson um, and and her thoughts on you starting the business. He always comes across with such confidence and such belief in his his own ideas that I never once doubted that he'd be able to pull this off. I mean, obviously, there's been ups and downs, but no, I I never had any doubt that he'd be able to do this. I'm sure he did, (laughs) but he certainly never gave the impression that he'd wished he'd he'd not gone into this venture and, and maybe stayed in the corporate safer world. Do you agree with her? No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look... you know, you can talk about imposter syndrome means lots of things to different people. I don't think I've ever had that. That's not where I'm going with this. But I think there is a running through most entrepreneurs, this element of self-doubt and this just this drive to do things better and try harder. And, you know, Morgan talks about the £9,000 year. You know, that was on the back of a pretty poor couple of years for me. You know, these, I spoke about those developments I was doing and I couldn't sell. You know, I was I was selling them at any price to get shot of them. You know, so I went from you know, lots of cash in the bank to just getting any money in and no cash in the bank. And, you know, I think it's fair to say in sort of 2000 and 2009, 2010, I was making a list of friends to call just to lend me a few quid to get me to the first deal. And, you know, again, I think that's very common of some of the other people you've spoken to. I think you have to go through those moments sometimes when you take that big risk to take you to the next level. And hopefully you're humble enough to remember those times and hopefully to learn from those times as well. Lou clearly trusted her gut, despite the risk. Um, And it seems she's not the only one. We spoke to Ali Stewart, who's the COO of Alandi, about how she came to join the business. So having met Mark sitting as the panel member at this breakfast seminar, I sat down afterwards on the back of the impression that he'd made on me and wrote him an email basically saying how interesting I had found everything that he had to say and explaining a little bit about my background. And what I actually wanted to do was to persuade him to come and do a series of roundtables with Um, occupier clients of this law firm. And it was one of those emails that you write and you look at it and read it back to yourself and go, oh, am I really going to send this or not? But in the end, I hit the send button. And literally within half an hour, I had a phone call from Mark saying, 
thank you so much for all of the very kind things that you said about me. But actually, we're looking for a COO for the business. Would you be interested in talking to me? And that was nearly three years ago. What I've learned of him since is that that whole kind of spontaneity of approach was really indicative of his whole attitude and his willingness to go on gut instinct because he basically recruited me as their chief operating officer on the back of a pretty brief conversation over a glass of wine. Maybe I should quit headhunting and open a wine bar. <laughs> how, how do you balance gut instinct with factual data when, when making decisions? That's a very good point. I think, you know, it ebbs and flows in your career. I mean, there are times when you just have to go with your gut instinct and there are times when you really have to think and consider and look to the data and take a sounder view as well. Um, I think it, it, it's, it's interesting and Ali's being far too humble about her own background and her own abilities. Um, I think we'd reached a stage between Morgan and I where we wanted to take the business to the next level and we knew we were missing something. You know, there's a, so many great things about being in partnership with one person or more people, you know, sharing the load and learning from each other and helping each other grow. But sometimes you reach a, a blockage and to take Alandi to the next level in terms of, you know, professionalism, rigor, development of staff, et cetera, et cetera. We needed somebody to come in and make the business work. And um, yeah, it was very clear from the email that Ali had sent me that this was a, you know, very, an exceptional woman who could really add something to the partnership. And um I've, you know, I'll be very, very frank, there's no way we could have got through the last three years without Ali. You know, the challenges we've had in the business, me being ill, et cetera, she's been an absolute rock. It says COO on her job title. I'm, I'm, I've no idea what she does for the business, if I'm honest, but whatever it is, it's damn good and it works. Um, you know, an exceptional human being. Love her. Well, you say um, she's humble. According to her, she said, you said that her CV was, and I quote, bonkers. And despite or or maybe because of her eclectic CV, what qualities do you generally admire in, in, in people? What do you look for in people that you're going to back? We've always had a really strong values culture at Landy. And I think that's come through in the way we've recruited and it's stood us in fabulous stead. And the way we develop the value culture at Landy is, is, a, is a brilliant, brilliant lesson in itself because... We didn't have one and I wasn't aware that we had one. And I was in a meeting. This is yeah, this has got to be seven or eight years ago. And I was in a meeting with um, with a couple of colleagues and I suggested doing something which maybe my gut instinct was wrong, clearly wrong in this locate occasion. And I, I suggested doing something. And one of the senior guys in the room said, Mark, we, we can't do that. I said, why not? He said, well, it's not the Alandi way. I was like, what? what is the Alandi way? So, but it's the way we behave. We don't do things like this and we certainly wouldn't do that. And I, and I turned to the other guys in the room and said, what is Alex talking about? And they said, the Alandi way. It's the way we do things. I'm like, is there a yeah. manual I'm not aware well, of? Exactly. <laughs> Who wrote this book? Um, and I sort of investigated a bit further and I went out for lunch with Morgan. I said, you know, do you realise that, you know, you heard of the Alandi way? He's like, no, what are you talking about, you madman again? And, and we looked into it and we investigated it and we thought, wow, this is a culture that's grown up in the business organically that's really powerful. So we, you know, did a bit of workshopping. And so we distilled, you know, every most corporate cultures, there's the values and it starts at the top and it's cascaded down and often doesn't work. They become words on the wall. Now, we did have the words on the wall, but the, the words on the walls were written by the team, you know, and it came out of... Um, 
you know, a lot of thinking. And, what were the words? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll get it wrong. <laughs> uh, community, expertise, empowerment. Oh, nuts. I knew this would happen. <laughs> Integrity. Good grief. How could I forget that one? Jeepers, creepers. So I'm a bit nervous. Um, no, integrity is probably the strongest one, actually, mm. if if I'm very honest. One of the qualities that people most admire in you is is your honesty, your integrity. They can trust you to stick to your word and say it like it is. Here's Matthew Weiner, former CEO of You and I, and Alandi's first funding partner, sharing his thoughts. One of the tests we've always used, and I still use today, is it's easy to phone up your partner and say you've made them £10 million. It's harder to say we've got a problem and will you pick up the phone and say this is the issue and this is the solution that we think is best. Let's talk about it. And during my the times we were partners with Alandi, we had some pretty frank conversations. Sometimes we differed over exit strategies. Sometimes we differed over individual deals. Lots of different things. But I would say that Mark and Morgan were always happy to sit down and talk about it and explain their rationale, what their thinking was, what was driving it. And beyond that was this wasn't a business plan that was designed to milk fees for Alandi. I think that's a big thing that differentiates them from some other people that we see, that they're very focused on what's best for the asset and what's best for the partner and not necessarily what's best for Alandi. Well, that's that's really kind words. And I, I believe it to be true as well, actually. Um, yeah, I think there is a reputation in the market that maybe operating partners do have about, you know, this fee-driven thing. And we've always put integrity at the forefront of everything. You know, we have resigned from mandates, usually because there's a trust element missing between ourselves and our partners, or we've got to the altar with the potential partner and, you know, just looked them in the eye and thought, can we be in bed with these people for the next five years? You know, and because it's going to be hard. Even, you know, even in good times, you have to make hard decisions. Even in good times things are going to go wrong. And unless you've got that foundation of trust, you have nothing. So and that comes back to the integrity piece as well, obviously. How important was that first backing from you and I? Hugely. I mean, I didn't have to start phoning friends and asking for money for, for the mortgage and the school fees. Um, that's quite interesting, actually. We, we don't put it on the CV, uh, well, on the website, because um, it might confuse people. We did a really, really successful office deal, which would just confuse people. And um, we uh, we actually traded in and traded out of, uh, of an iconic building in the middle of Bristol, what was until quite recently called the Colston Tower. Mm. And that went spectacularly well. But we kind of brought the retail asset management ethos to a to a multi-let office building. And it, it worked really well. It flew. I mean, we sort of doubled the rents during the period and brought some leisure into the ground floor and a bar onto the podium. Um, yeah, we, we should have done more in retrospect. <laughs> Whilst as a business, you're focusing more and more on town centres and regeneration. You still manage a lot of retail, which has not always been the easiest sector to sit in. Here's Matthew again, talking about why he thinks you've made a success of it. What have I learned from Mark? I think dogged determination. You know, they've been in a in a basket case of a sector for I don't know how many years. You know, they've had punch after punch after punch. And every time you think that must floor Elandi, we're never going to see them again. Lo and behold, they reinvent themselves slightly. They pivot, they're agile. And they say, no, no, we've got a core skill set in this platform, which is still valuable. We've just got to deploy it on a different basis. And I have been super impressed how, you know, they've come out from, you know, what would look like problem positions to being managers on behalf of other capital. When we did our first deal with them, did I think that we would soon be bypassed just because we weren't big enough at the scale of their ambition? Probably not. We did two deals, maybe three deals with them at the time. And look where they went from there. And, and that 
that resoluteness and resilience is not easy. We've all got our sensitive sides and they must have rolled with some hell of punches and had to have some very tough conversations with their capital partners. And the fact that they're still there building a great business with diversity and inclusion at the forefront of their thinking, with community at the forefront of their thinking, all of those things that are important to me, I see absolutely fully and squarely in in the Alandai business model. And to do that in the sector they've been in, not just go, oh my God, I can't be bothered with this, let's go and do something else, is a testament to fortitude. Do you agree? Well, I'm a bit of an idiot savant. I only know retail, apart from having done a really good office deal with Matthew. <laughs> so I don't have an awful lot of choice. Why Morgan's stuck with the sector, I don't know. that. You'd have to ask him about it. But um, look, at the end of the day, irrespective of the capital value of these places we call retail, they still exist. And they still need to thrive. And communities need these places to work for them. And as long as there is that need, there is going to be a need for expertise and a need for a, a sincere belief in making these places better um, and as long as there's that need I think there'll be need for businesses like Alandi um, and what I find really quite reassuring and it certainly you know fortifies my world view is that uh, this idea that you know you've got social good and good for capital operating in two utterly different non-overlapping Venn diagrams is I've never believed to be the case and it's now so self-evident that it's actually becoming easier to reconcile the good with the profitable because unless you're doing that social good now unless you are really putting community at the heart of everything you do whether it's nailsy which is a tiny wee town which we bought a shopping center with with matthew or merry hill two million square feet in the west midlands unless you put the community need at the heart of everything you're doing you will not have that capital success you will not have that economic success so actually it's kind of getting easier he says i'm always putting a positive spin on everything it's not but in some ways, it's getting easier to actually reconcile those two two things that drive me. It sounds like ESG has long been a, a priority for you, the sustainability, the inclusivity, the community creation. Well, Morgan puts it brilliantly. He said this in, in a meeting years ago, you know, we're green because we're mean, you know, because it makes financial sense. Mm -hmm. The community could makes financial sense. So there's, there's no conflict there. And in, in, in many ways, if, you know. With, with, with suitable humility, the market is catching up with the way we have been thinking. You know, we've been talking about community shopping centres now for about seven years. Mm. Now, everybody talks about shopping centres as being community centres. Now, copying is the greatest form of flattery, clearly. Um, and I'm just glad that everybody's onto the same agenda now. But we realised that to make a retail place thrive, it needed not just to be at the heart of the community, but the community uses needed to be in it as well. So if you had a small grocery-anchored shopping centre, if it had a doctor's surgery and you had a gym in there and you had the vets and a dentist, it would do better because people were coming to the town centre for all those reasons as well. And whilst they're there, doing a bit of shopping, whilst they're there, having lunch with friends. So it's always been part of the solution. It's just taken a bit of a while for the narrative to get on board uh, with that being part of the solution. As we come out of what is hopefully the worst of the COVID crisis, what advice would you offer to those on the road to recovery? How can you make the most out of a challenging market? Focus and be the best you can be, um, but remain curious and open to new influences. And I've got to come to this, have diverse voices around the table, both within the business and hopefully within the, the larger teams you work with. Well, indeed, Matthew talks about that, how you've put D&I very much at the centre of your your approach. Tell us more about that. Well, the, the great thing is we haven't. You know, 
the journey we've been on and uh, the leadership position I think we have with D&I within the industry to a degree, which you know has been recognized by the Rewire Award from the EG, didn't happen deliberately. Um, if, if I'm honest, what happened was I was on a judging panel with the Estates Gazette and there was all these companies trumpeting their amazing D&I agenda. And I was just thinking, these guys are remedial. This is really poor. I mean, you know, by any standard, our business knocks them out of the park. So I thought, well, you know, it'd be a bit silly not to submit ourselves for scrutiny next year. And again, it's not been a deliberate thing. We've just employed people that we found interesting that aligned with our values. And if you do that, you end up with this wonderful, diverse workforce who are committed to the cause and committed to the the vision we want to create as a business as well. So I'm kind of really proud of the fact that we've ended up in this position without having a DNI policy. We now have a, a vision, which is um, a, a more codified thing. But again, that's, that's something else that's bubbled up throughout the business as opposed to being imposed top down. Is there now a section in the Alandi Way manual on DNI? Um, well, okay, you know, we talked about curiosity, and I think one of the things as I've got a little bit older, I have become a bit more curious about better practice and getting better as a business, getting better as a business leader, and what have you. And I've, as anybody in my business will know, I've got a bit of a man crush on Simon Sinek. So um, there's a lot of cynicisms within the business, which is which is no bad thing at all whatsoever. So. We had the values in place, um, then we needed our why, so we put our purpose in place. Actually, Ali bought me a book, which is Legacy, which is about the uh, the All Blacks culture and how, about how they became the most uh, successful sporting team ever. And I realized that we had this one thing missing, which Simon Sinek also talks about, um, the infinite game. We didn't have that, where do we want to be in the future? And that's the vision piece. So rather than, again, sitting in a room, Ali, me and Morgan, we decided to throw it back to the team and ask them where did they want the business to be in the future? What was their vision for the business? Um, and you know, to keep the rugby analogy going, we 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 threw the ball to the amazing uh, Ruth Morehouse, who's uh, one of the rising stars within our business, and she set up the the vision board. And they did a big consultation across the entire business. And one of the things they did is they checked all the company values. Are we living up to the company values? Um, and it was pretty life affirming in that. The, the business generally said, yep, the business, we all live up to our values. There was a bit of weakness around empowerment, which perhaps we can talk about later. Um, but yeah, we're living up to our values and where do we want to be? And so over a period of months, through consultation, Ruth presented the vision back to us, which is to create the UK's most sustainable, inclusive communities. And that's now our guiding star for everything we do as a business. And the vision board is there to make sure that we live the values of the business and we live up to the vision of the business and uh, Ruth is now on the operating board as well to make sure that we do and and it's great and they they provide proper challenge now if we bring on board a new client they want to understand the motivations of that client where do they come from what do they want to achieve yeah it means not a KYC is it sort of a Saudi money buying Newcastle or what have you it's mm. you know it's really are, are we aligned as people and um and that's wonderful. For owner-managed businesses, there's always this challenge of how you make it more than just the person whose name is on the door, the founders. And uh, Morgan spoke to us about that. Let's have a listen. What we're really trying to do within the business now is also make it less about Mark and I. And we've got some incredibly talented people within within the Alandi platform. And we're, we're trying to create the space 
for all of those people to thrive uh, and it not to be about the founders. I think that is one of the issues in founder-owned partnerships. It's sometimes hard for the, the founders to get out of the road. And um, one of the things we're desperately trying to do is is to empower our team and ensure there isn't a Mark and Morgan shadow looming over people, which is kind of an ironic concept given how short we're going far. <laughs> that is absolutely fair. One of the really interesting things about being in partnership with somebody is when you you know, when you start, especially when you, you, you'll know this, when you start in 2008 and you're in the trenches and the mud and the bullets are flying and you get close, you get so close and there's not a cigarette paper between the two of you because you have to, you have to be reaffirming one another just to get through the day, get through the week, get through the month. And then the, the great thing about the growth of a business and the success of a business is it then gives you space to start being your own people again and, you know, articulating, um, what you want, um, so that, that's been a really interesting journey, learning to d- disagree with one another. Um, and then one of the best innovations that we've had as a business, as we've sought to empower um, and develop the next leaders within the business, we've now got a much wider board. There's eight people on the operating boards. And it goes against anything you, your gut tells you. But we found that by having a far bigger board, we make better decisions more quickly. Hmm. Because we don't end up agonizing between one point between the two of us anymore. We go, look, I think this, you think that, or somebody else thinks this. We debate it and we make a decision. And uh, it's been so refreshing. I actually look forward to our Tuesday morning board meetings. It's not just the market that's been challenging. In April 2020, you were on your peloton and out of nowhere suffered a fairly serious brain hemorrhage. And you were rushed to hospital for, for surgery. What happened, Mark? It's slightly more complex than that. Lou's brand new Peloton and I sort of, I'm only my second time on it and I've always been into strength training, not uh, aerobic endurance. I maybe shouldn't have jumped on an exercise bike. Um, but for one of the world's biggest self-confessed hypochondriacs, and I am, and I'm, Lou may have mentioned that, but what actually happened is I, I did collapse on the Peloton and came around and had clearly had a bit of a blinding headache. And I don't remember any of this, by the way, as you might imagine, Um, but insisted that I was okay. I was just a bit tired and, um, you know, take some aspirin and go to bed and went to bed, woke up 24 hours later, came downstairs, claimed to be completely fine again. And then then properly collapsed. So I wasn't, you know, to be a galloping hypochondriac and to put a brain hemorrhage and stroke. So I got a twofer, as my consultant calls it, you know, to have a twofer and then put it down to a headache that was going to go away. um, I'm, I'm just blessed and so lucky that it could have been so much serious so yeah i went to hospital I actually went to hospital the next day does that give you license now forever to be a hypochondriac not according to lou <laughs> <laughs> both lou and morgan uh shared their thoughts on the impact that this event had on you let's listen to morgan first he would he would ring me every day from hospital and it was like having really like having conversations with a really drunk mate who'd forgotten where he was. And you know, so have, you seen, have you seen the doctors today? And say, no, there are no doctors here. And you think, oh, well, that can't be true. Um, and then after a few days, he called me and um, he'd had his stroke the first week after lockdown. And he rang and he said, my long-term memory is okay, but I can't really remember much about the last few months. Can you, can you bring me up to speed? And as I started to kick off on this what's happened in the last three months thinking that this is the end of march 2020 i i literally had to stop myself and say you're going to think i'm taking the piss here but there's this 
With this virus that's come from China, and we've had to shut the office, all of our shopping centres are going to close. Uh, we've sent all of our people to work from home. Nobody's paying their rent, and the government have just said that that's fine. To which I could hear stunned silence down the phone, and I couldn't decide if he'd had another brain hemorrhage or if he really thought I was taking the mic out of him. Tell us about that phone call. I'm, 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 I've got this. Uh, I've got this wonderful license to claim no memory of anything three months before and three months after it. So I, I don't remember that phone call. I mean, I do. I mean, Morgan has told me that um, he did call me shortly after I got out of the operating theatre, and he'd. He asked me whether I'd seen the family. I said, yeah, yeah, they've all been in to see me. It was in lockdown. I mean, I didn't see the family for two weeks. and uh, But uh, they have, between the two of them, they have pieced together the call list that I made when I got the phone, which why Lou sent the phone into me is beyond me. But um, she, she deserves everything she gets in that respect. But apparently I phoned Morgan, my mum, then Lou. <laughs> <laughs> so the fact I'm still married is quite remarkable. I think she's going to remind you for that oh, right. of that for a long, long time to come. Quite often, incidences like this can can change a person. We asked Lou her thoughts on on this. We had no idea who was coming home. Got ferried off in an ambulance with the blue lights flashing, and got told by the consultants that he was going in for brain surgery. And I literally didn't know what I was dealing with. So the very fact that a couple of weeks later he was home with some advice and guidance around your personality or character may change. I mean, goodness, all the things that could have happened and statistically do happen. The fact that there's a, there was a potential change in his character looming was the least of our concerns. But that said, yeah, he has changed. He was incredibly humble and grateful and couldn't get his head around what has happened. Certainly for the first few months, he was incredibly grateful and couldn't quite believe his luck. And he he's come out of it a nicer person. Not saying that he wasn't nice beforehand, but he believes he's really laid back. And he always says, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm such a laid back. But, but he's not. But certainly since his brain injury, he is very aware of the importance of mental health um, and looking after himself and also has become so much um, more available to his family, um, particularly his parents and the amount of time he spends talking to them and engaging with them in a way that he didn't before is just lovely to see. That's quite emotional. Actually, let's bring a bit of levity to the situation. So, about three months after the brain injury, I, I had my first consultation with the guy in hospital who saved my life. I still haven't met him because of COVID and what have you. And, and he explained to me that I'd had this stroke. And um, I said, well, I've had a brain hemorrhage and a stroke. And he said, yeah, you've had a twofer. You've survived a twofer. That's really rare. I said, okay, great. What does that mean? He said, well, it means a bit of your brain's dead. I said, crikey, that sounds serious. But how, how might that affect me? He said, well, it could change your personality. Yeah. Are, are you feeling normal? I said, yeah, but. I'm probably the last person to judge whether I'm normal or not. Um, you know, what what might have changed? And he said, well, it's you know, deep on the right-hand side of the subatrium ventricular, whatever, blah, 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 blah. So, it, you know, it's, it's the impulsive bit of you. So, you know, you might be, you know, quick to judgment and anger and, you know, what have you. And I was like, okay, well, I, see, I seem fine. He said, well, you've, you've mentioned your business partner and you've mentioned you're still married and you, know, you should talk to them about how you're behaving. And... Um, so I asked Morgan, and I said, you know, am I more impulsive? Am I more rash? Is my decision-making compromised? Um, and he said, mate, no, you, you're far calmer. You're more considered. No, 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 
no, I can't really say this, but you, you, you've come out of this pretty well, mate. Um, and I won't use the words that Lou used, but I asked her the same question and she said, you're less of a tosser. She, she, it, it was far, far more agricultural than that. But this is, you know, a family podcast and I won't use the word that she used. <laughs> the but, real um, estate family. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's um, it, it, it's pretty profound in many ways. And it, it's not, yeah, there are less than interesting things that I'm still working on to come through it, if I'm honest. How has it changed your approach to life, to business and, and, and risk-taking? You mentioned the exercise with the team on the vision board and that being life-affirming. How has the experience of that, what happened to you in 2020, how has it changed? I think anybody who's been through a life-changing event like that, and there are more people in real estate than you might think, I mean... It's it it is kind of humbling how many people have reached out to me and said, well, not pe- not many people know this, but this happened to me, and you're like, you know, you'll get through it. And it's you wow. know, absolutely fantastic. And some people who I won't mention have been incredibly helpful. Mm. So th- that is great, being part of a community and knowing that you're not alone. That's 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 been great. It does make you think about what you want out of life and what I want from the business. Um, it's less of it, you know. It's never actually to be fair. Morgan and I've never really been just about the money, making the promote and what have you. Um, we're both driven by a, something a bit more profound about how we do want to build a business and change places, and that's only become stronger, if I'm honest. And I'm thinking far more the the exit from the business that that Morgan and I want and will have at some stage. Um, it it's less about money as a scorecard, and it's about creating the right business and that legacy and how it gets then carried forward. Um, you know, doing the great work that we do want to do in communities across the UK. So, so that's that's been a pretty serious change. Um, I think one of the downsides, and I, you know, I'll happily share this, and I think people should be a bit more open. Is I think I have been guilty of overcompensating a bit. It's fair to say, and this is very common amongst brain injury sufferers, is you worry: Am I good enough? Am I back to my old self? You know, when I stumble for a word in a podcast, is that because of my brain injury? These are this runs through your mind constantly, and you, I think you can overcompensate by trying too hard and honestly working a bit too hard and making up to Morgan and the team for being missing for three months. It can be a, a driver, but not in an always positive way. And I'm, that's something I'm working on a little bit at the moment, just to sort of take that space to say, you know what. It's good enough. Get on with the rest of your life. Get on with what you now know is important because you've been through that thing you went through 18 months ago. COVID gave a lot of people time to True. reflect. I guess you had a, a COVID on steroids in that you had a, an event happen to you that really made you question, am I spending my time in the right way? Am I working with people I want to work with? All of those questions. To be honest, I don't think it made me think I'm doing anything wrong. You know, I didn't want to sort of grow my beard a bit longer and open a falafel burger um, <laughs> stall in Tooting Market or something. Though that does appeal slightly. I think it made me realise that, you know, I've got this great opportunity to make change happen and to improve places. And I think, you know, with quite a lot of self-reflection that happens when you're sat in a hospital bed or hold up at home, hardly able to walk for months on end, you do think about these things. And um you know, if you're a property developer, you, you, you like improving stuff. You like fixing things up. Um, and and that's I think that's become a bit of a core purpose of mine. I like developing, and that means developing staff, developing buildings, developing places, developing communities, making places better, um, which is why the, you know, the High Street Task Force was an amazing opportunity that I couldn't say no to. I mean, I was literally, you know, I had the interview with the panel. I was, you know, struggled up to the office on the, first floor of the house to be interviewed I sort of had my 
pajamas still on um you know had a shirt on for the first time in probably four months and just wing this panel and so hang on you interviewed whilst recuperating yeah wow yeah yeah, yeah. i mean it, it, yeah i think i can remember this quite well i just remember thinking don't try and be too clever because you, you know you, i wasn't that confident in my cognitive abilities i just thought be honest and speak with passion about what you care about and if that's what they're looking for, happy days. And what do you want to achieve as part of this tenure? Um, I think if I'm really honest, I'll have much more impact and effect through Alandi because that's real. And it's 28 communities we're currently working in that's going to, you know, we work with thousands of people across the UK. We affect the lives of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. That's a proper driver of change. With the task force, this is the biggest serious attempt of any government to affect change within our communities in the built environment you know when you think that the portus review happened in 2011 and you know mary got an awful lot of criticism actually her report was outstanding and the tv series was a complete misstep mm. um but she was given 1.3 million pounds to change 11 towns current government investment through towns fund and future high street fund leveling up agenda is currently about 8 billion you know, the High Street Task Force is funded £2 million a year to make capacity and increase collaboration, information and skill set. You know, this is a proper, proper effort. And I just felt, well, you know, if there is an opportunity to make sure that it lands as well as it possibly can do, it would be insane not to try and be part of that. You know, it's, it, it, it is an interesting one. I'm sort of relatively renowned in the industry for being one of the most left-wing people in the industry, which makes me ever so slightly left of centre, obviously. Um, so, you know, I do lie awake at nights occasionally thinking, if I do this job really, really well and I'm going to secure 40 red wall seats for the current administration, okay, well, as long as the 40 communities are better, I'll live with that. Now, we're allowed to travel again. We are sending you off on our desert island. What do you expect the market to look like this time next year when we bring you back from desert island isolation? Oh, crikey. Um, within retail property, massive change is going to continue. Um, I mean, the internal term we're using is the great rotation. We think about 98% of shopping centres are owned by people who don't want to own them at the moment, which is an enormous challenge and also an enormous opportunity. So how does that play out? How does the landy take advantage of that? What impact does that have upon communities? And you know, one of the things I do advise government on outside of the strict confines of the high street task force is just what is going on in the world of commercial real estate specifically retail and shopping centers and i think that's going to be a yeah a massive massive challenge um but again a, a, a huge opportunity you know the fact that values has been decimated is not good if you are an investor you know that that, that is that is awful um but at the same time, the rebasing of these values to a level where alternative uses become viable has, is the opportunity and is the real excitement and is the real driver for the change agenda that we've got at Alandi. And it's very much, to be honest, feeds back into the government interventions they're doing, you know, all, all the money going in and very much the ethos of pro-change that we're trying to enliven in communities through the High Street Task Force as well. Where do you see the most potential in real estate at the moment? I've spoken to graduates about this. If, if you want to make change happen, if you really want to make a difference in real estate, there is no better sector than this thing we call retail at the moment. You know, you can definitely make more money in other sectors. 
there's definitely more other sectors which are far sexier and you'll be able to fly the world but if you really if, if you've got real estate in your bones if you've got bricks and mortar in your fiber and you want to create places that people love and engage with this is the place to be at the moment because there's so much to do one of my frustrations actually is that the this leveling up agenda that everybody's talking about is the most enormous opportunity for the real estate sector and people haven't woken up to it yet one of the privileges i get from working with high streets task forces i get to meet community volunteers in markets in briarley hill and i get to interview lord kerslake you know and everything in between and um, lord kerslake's report has highlighted the fact that the leveling up agenda in the uk is akin to the challenge that was posed between the unit reunifying germany and that was 1.7 trillion euros you know so this, you know, let's credit the government with the eight billion pounds they're putting into the agenda, but it's nowhere near enough. And that money's got to come from somewhere. And that money will make a good financial return because you're investing in these town centers that are the core of community infrastructure that have been there for 2000 years and are going to be there in 2000 years time. And I do wish that the industry would wake up to that opportunity. You mentioned ESG earlier. And um, we had our eighth Alandi Rocks a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we had a panel about investing. And we said it was ESG, too much E and not enough S, because people are piling into the E part because it's easy. Stick some solar panels on a roof, tick, 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 tick. Plant some trees outside. Plant some trees, yeah. blah, 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 blah. It's all very measurable. Social impact is where it's going to be at. Place-based impact investing is where it's going to be at. And Alandi is going to be leading that. We want to be the operating partner of choice of investors who want to make real change happen within towns and cities that that's not the company vision because the company set that vision but that's the sort of commercial goal that's going to feed that vision underneath that how exciting and yes it is the most difficult it is also the one not just that the capital is increasingly needing to address but also where the talent wants to see their employers addressing and there's a huge advantage for companies who prioritize that. I think it's fair to say that you know, we've been on this massive growth tear as a business. And we've gone from 26 people to 41. And what has shocked, surprised and really been quite life affirming is the quality of the talent that's joined us. You know, People have taken pay cuts to join us because they've bought into the vision. They've bought into what we're trying to achieve as a business. And I think it's going to be the core of any business is to make sure that 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 direction of travel and that vision that you are articulating is real and that your team buy into it and you're on that journey together. You know, it is it is a challenge for Landy, if I'm honest. You know, we are doing a lot of work out for banks. So how do we align that with the vision? Well, you know, the flippant answer is, you know, any ESG policy should say, number one, make enough money to do good. So that's kind of important. But also it goes back to this, um, what I was talking about earlier, this idea you've got this social good and commercial sense being non-overlapping Venn diagram. It's not, it's a circle. So actually, if we are doing workout and we are doing it with the community values, we will get better economic outcomes as well. So it's all part of the same thing, part of the same journey. Um, but the change we want to see happening within our places isn't quick. You know, it is going to take years if not decades to affect the real change unpicking 60 years of post-war retail dominance in our town centers doesn't get unpicked in 12 months 18 months this is going to you know these the sort of projects we're doing at the moment are five ten year projects and that's why 
frankly, we've got to build this amazing team of future leaders within Alandi, which we are doing, to take the business forward through that time frame. Well, one thing that hasn't changed is your faith in a specific part of the retail business. To wrap things up, here's Lou sharing her thoughts on where you'll never stop investing. Mark loves to dress up. Mm. bit of fancy dress and he's unstoppable. Give him some glitter sequins at a festival and he's an absolute nightmare. Every year we go to a festival in the Cotswolds and he makes a point of getting a new outfit and he drags our teenage children along to help him choose. And it's just the most hideous, grotesque ensemble of glitter sequins. It's repulsive, but he loves it. Absolutely loves it. You know, covers himself in glitter and face gems and absolutely throws himself into it. I'm sure not many in the property world know about that. They do now. I'm amazed that photographs haven't appeared on social media or in the property press, but I think that my transformation is so complete, people tend not to recognise me, thankfully. <laughs> I think we need someone out there to suggest a wager that if you lose, we'll have a MIPM appearance of, of, of Mark in Glitter. I'm scarred by the fact when I was 16, I went to a Rocky Horror Picture Show fancy dress party and I didn't dress up. And I told myself, I'm never, if I ever go to a fancy dress ever again, I go full bore. And um, I think I've always lived up to that. So there's, you know, there, there is the glittery festival outfits, but there's been plenty of other things that I really wouldn't like to see on social media. <laughs> We'll dig it out, test our research skills. Mark Robinson, rocket man of the retail world. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It's been a blast. Desert Island Risks is brought to you by Bowhill Partners, the leading executive search firm in the private markets industry. For more information on this podcast or Bowhill Partners, feel free to visit our website at www.bowhillpartners.com or our Instagram page at Desert Island Risks.